Hello and welcome to Pali, the Hindu's weekly discussion podcast. I'm Prashant Varmal, your host for today. At a time when the central government claims to be liberalizing India's economy, its economic policy making on the external front has been marked by rising protectionism. With policies such as Atmanirbhar Bharat, there seems to be a conscious effort by the central government to protect the domestic economy from foreign competition. One sign of this has been the rise in the average tariffs that have been imposed on imports over the last decade or so. Uh, there's also been similar barriers raised on the capital account as well. So this brings the question as to whether the external protectionist policy of the government is actually compatible with the government's promise of liberalizing India's economy. To discuss this issue, I have with me Mr. Biswajit Dar, who is a professor at the Center for Economic Studies and Planning at the Jawaharlal Nehru University, and Dr. Ajay Shah, who is a research professor of business at Jindal Global University. Welcome to both of you. And my first question to Mr. Dar is, is the government's external uh, protectionist policy actually compatible with its uh, broader liberalization agenda? Mr. Dar? Yeah. I think that the kind of protectionism that we are seeing in, you know, in the name of Atmanirbhar Bharat is somewhat disappointing, I would say, because while there is a case for having an industrial policy where you try and calibrate, you like you know, identify winners and then you know, sort of invest in industries that you think could be globally competitive. What is happening uh, in India is that there is a long list of sectors uh, in which uh, the government is really has really embarked on uh, the import substitution kind of a framework that uh, there is an incentive for players to uh, produce domestically. And what is problematic in my view is that you're not talking about efficiencies which will make these sectors globally competitive. The emphasis is on producing in, in India, which is, you know, it's sort of continues from the Make in India policy of the government. And uh, I have not actually heard of big emphasis. There have been bits and pieces of uh, this thing of efficiency coming in. But I haven't seen efficiency being the centerpiece of the production linked incentive scheme, uh, for instance. In any case, you can't have this long list of sectors. So while on the one hand, we are engaging in these trade agreements, and it'll be, I think, this year, government wants to engage in eight free trade agreements and get some of them done by the end of the year. Uh, you can't have a situation where you are following this kind of uh, across-the-board protectionism. Yeah, I also uh, share that same kind of perspective. I just would say it in a couple of different ways. One is the very standard trade theory idea that uh, different countries should do different things. They should specialize. And it is not easy for policymakers to understand what India will be good at and what India will be bad at. And these are things for markets to discover. Uh, I always like to remind us of the story from the 70s where uh, the policymakers in New Delhi thought that electronics export was going to be a good thing. So they created the Santa Cruz electronics export processing zone in Bombay. And by the way, what was so special? What was so privileged in SEEPS? The answer is they removed customs duties. So by removing protectionism, they thought they were doing a favor to the electronics industry. 
And uh, 30 years later, when you look back at the outcome, what came out of SEEPS? Two miracles came out of SEEPS. They were the software industry and they were the diamond processing industry. So the industrial policy guys were wrong. It was not actually electronics where there was a fabulous opportunity for India. It was software. It was diamonds. And the point is the market economy knows how to discover these things policymakers don't. So that's the first idea. The second idea is a very simple intuition that every time you cut customs duties, every time you remove elements of protectionism, then the firms in India who are users of those goods become more competitive. So we grow exports from India by making raw materials cheaper. So again, one man's output is another man's input. And policymakers cannot tell which is the one that they should be backing. So the wise strategy is to just remove all barriers to globalization. That is the best path for us as a country. Uh, okay, nice. Next question to Mr. Darius like, is like when you talk about external protectionism, do you see that as like a reflection of the government's domestic economic policy? Because a lot of critics say that the government's not really been very good at liberalizing even the domestic economy. So they don't really see much of a difference between the, its external economic policy and its domestic policy. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I do entirely. Because for me, external liberalization, trade policy, trade liberalization, and, you know, sort of getting the domestic reforms right. And here I'm talking about the, the nuts and bolts. You know, you're talking about infrastructure and, you know, getting some of these uh, the red tape out of the way and whole works. You know, for 30 years, we have been, for instance, we've been hear- hearing about a single window clearance. It hasn't had- actually happened. Instead of uh, red tape uh, getting out of the way, I think uh, it's uh, just piling on. So ease of doing business is a, is, a, is a major issue. So all these factors, you know, internally are uh, becoming a big uh, sort of millstone round uh, the neck, neck of the investors. And uh, it's just very clear that if if the government doesn't get its act together domestically, doesn't get all the necessary structures in place, in, in, including the institutions and all, you're not going to get uh, any kind of investment. You're not going to get foreign investment. Uh, you're not going to get domestic investors. And, and that's going to be a, a, a huge problem. So, you know, there, there's been this discussion going on for the past 30, 30 years as to why China or some of these other Southeast Asian countries have been attracting foreign investment, while India, which always, you know, the successive governments have been saying that we have the most investor-friendly foreign investment policy, foreign direct investment policy. Why is it that investors are not coming here and actually uh, investing uh, long-term in this country? So it is really, you know, these two domestic and internal sort of reforms have to go hand in hand. You just can't uh, liberalize. You just can't uh, sort of have this external sector liberalization. This is what we did. Uh, we, I think we went uh, did the did the opposite. We went and did the external liberalization first, and then started thinking about what to do to internally. And we have never got the act together. Uh, I think there is a long agenda of many many pieces that are a problem and that need to be sorted out. But uh, we have to be strategic. We have to think about where the bottlenecks are. So as an example, uh, you may have seen I wrote a column in a newspaper today where I argue that the infrastructure bottleneck is not as central as is made out to be. So we need a debate and we need to think about 
what are the really important bottlenecks that are impeding the Indian participation in global uh, supply chains and in the world of globalized production. And I want to link this up also to questions surrounding the labor market, that on one hand, there is poor levels of employment in India. It to be a fairly high wage below which uh, it is not possible to hire people. So, you know, a simple comparison is that the average labor intensive manufacturing wage in Bangladesh is about half of what we see in the east of India. So I think we need to think about many of these problems and figure out where are those domestic bottlenecks that are holding back large-scale labor-intensive investment in India. The next question is, I guess a year or two ago, an interesting data was there, point was that much of the foreign investment that was coming into India actually was like, going to a single company or a group of a very few companies, basically. So I kind of show the amount of concentration or maybe like, does it reflect the amount of entry barriers to foreign capital or something? Like, what exactly does that say about our, our open India's to foreign capital? I think that there is a shifting global landscape that uh, we need to think about. And sometimes I think we in India are being a little too complacent about this. So. Let me put my picture of what is going on. I think that from 2012 onwards, uh, when Xi Jinping came to power in China, there was a great deal of economic nationalism by China, where the Chinese state has done unfair things to foreigners in various ways. And a lot of foreign companies were somewhat complacent about the difficulties of the Chinese political system. And they thought that in time, these problems would be solved. And in fact, those problems have not been solved. We've had 10 years of Xi Jinping. And by now, there is considerable disenchantment on the part of global companies of operating in China. Okay, and next big episode you have of that nature is Russia. Lots of global companies have invested quite a bit in Russia. And they have seen vast losses after Russia invaded Ukraine. And once again, that is making many global companies think afresh about what are the minimum levels of fair play and rule of law and Article 14 equal treatment that foreign companies get when they are present in the local economy. So I think the bar is now higher for India as compared to the way things were 10 years ago. 10 years ago, global investors were a little more complacent. They thought that there can be all kinds of political conflicts, but on the subject of economics, there will be openness, there will be fair play, there will be equal treatment of global companies. I think the message is spreading all over the world in global companies that you can't be so complacent, that political risk is a problem, that equal treatment of foreign companies is a problem. So I think that India also needs to work harder based on this changing landscape to remain an attractive destination for global companies to operate. So do you actually uh, think that foreign investors aren't that willing to come into India? Or do you, you don't think that there are actually certain barriers that the Indian government itself puts in place to like... Uh, I think that yeah, there was more optimism and people were willing to take the risk in the hope, in the idea that over time, these problems will get solved. Well, in China, they did not get solved. Well, in Russia, they did not get solved. 
And in India, many foreign companies have famously experienced difficulties. For example, Nokia built a factory in India with 18,000 workers, and then they got into a tax dispute, and then they sold the factory and left the country. So I think that foreign investors are more skeptical as compared to the way things were, say, 10, 15 years ago. And there have been many bad experiences, not just in India, but also in China and in Russia. So I think the minimum bar has risen for the kind of fair play and equal treatment and institutional quality that foreign investors face in a country. And uh, when there is a appearance of economic nationalism, it will be taken more badly than was the case in the olden days. Thank you, Mr. Dar. Your take. Yeah, I, I do think that the, the challenges of attracting foreign investors is, is much, much more now. Um, apart from what uh, Ajay has mentioned uh, in terms of the bar getting raised in other countries, I think it's uh, it's also a fact that uh, also mentioned about weak institutions are uh, becoming a major major bottleneck. Also, and apart from that. There is, you know, increasing finance capital rather than, you know, what we call what we used to call foreign direct investment. Of course, uh, all that has got uh, completely mixed up, and uh, so the competition for little, in uh, you know, sort of relatively small amounts of investments that are available for uh, the manufacturing sector, for instance, the industrial capital. So I make a distinction between the industrial capital and finance capital. So there is real competition for declining uh, you know share of uh, industrial capital and 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 therefore the challenges are are much more i don't think that uh, the foreign investors were uh, ever thoroughly convinced about uh, what india has to offer in terms of institutions and all otherwise as mentioned earlier that uh, they would have accepted the the, the narrative put forward by successive governments that you know, india offers a very attractive investment destination I, I don't think that was ever ex- accepted. And again, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, that there are you know significant bottlenecks in terms of uh, that investors uh, face on on various counts. And uh, of course, uh, we can we can keep listing the issues, but it is a very long list of issues that uh, have to be sorted out uh, by the government, uh, government of India, and also the state governments in order that. Uh, India becomes uh, a more attractive destination uh, for foreign investors. So, Mike, the next question is with the one of the uh, points in support of Atmanubra Bharat is that uh, even advanced economies have been using these uh, barriers, different barriers to actually p- promote certain industries or to promote certain part of the domestic industry, uh, domestic economy. So, uh, doesn't that like give scope for? A discretionary policy and a discretionary government policy, and that again like brings the uh, brings along with the the risk of like playing favorites to a certain group or certain special interest group. So, do you see that happening in India? Like, what do you think of that risk? Um, I consider myself skeptical and uh, easy to impute motives and uh, worry about corruption and so on. I actually worry about a more basic thing, which is that nobody knows the future. So it is very, very difficult to look at the future and figure out which Indian industry is going to do well and which Indian industry is going to do badly. I showed you the example of SEEPs. Those were some of the smartest people in the country at that time who were involved in economic policy. 
but they were not able to figure out that the opportunity in India lay in software and in diamonds and not in electronics. So I just think that the market economy is a great method of discovery. It is a tool for figuring out what works and what doesn't work. It involves taking risks. Many private people have to try many, many things. Some will work, some will not work. It is not in the nature of bureaucracies to do experimentation, to try things. So I just feel that industrial policy involves a requirement of a high level of knowledge, a high level of forecasting capability, a high intellectual capacity in government. And, you know, frankly, nobody in the world has the ability to forecast what's going to happen five years out, 10 years out. That's not the nature of the uh, world economy. So I feel we should all be modest and say we don't know. And then let the market economy do the game of risk-taking, investment, making mistakes, and many firms will go bankrupt, many industries will shut down. That's okay. That's how we find out what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, I think uh, you know the policy should be made uh, by the government and industries uh, you know, having a dialogue. And, and this has been the success story of uh, many of the Southeast Asian countries because uh, they have not uh, just let the market uh, do the do whatever it wanted to. There was uh, a very serious participation by the by the industry, the market forces, uh, together with uh, what they were expecting for the gov- government. Now we all know that the government has to play a very important role of a facilitator. But uh, of course, the company, the market no, market forces know what is best. And that kind of a dialogue uh, really took, starting from Japan, Korea, and and many of the other Southeast Asian countries, Singapore being another one where it's come has come up quite quite strongly in this following the same model. And uh, to my mind, uh, that is the way India uh, should actually go because I uh, have a you know, point here that we tried to just rely on the market forces in. In the better part of the past 30 years, uh, but we didn't make much headway. And in the process, we found that uh, Indian industry and also also agriculture, you know, most of the productive sectors have been lagging behind. So the moment the you know the the economy was exposed to to foreign competition, and the serious thing that happened uh, exposure to foreign competition really happened after we started implementing the free trade agreements with ASEAN, Japan, Korea, and and now you know we we started finding uh, the lack of depth in terms of the different sectors. I won't I can't put a finger. I think it's across the board there are problems there. So I think to overcome this, uh, really we the government needs to hear what uh, the uh, you know the the players on the ground the, the market forces they they they, need, they have to say and and the government needs to uh, respond adequately to my mind that is the model of industrial policy that i would be uh, looking at and uh, i think that is uh, the, the way forward but what does this whole like the external protectionist policy of the government mean at the end of the day for the Indian consumer? Like, why shouldn't the like, consumer be allowed to buy something that's cheaper that's coming from a, another country? Like, that's the fundamental question. So, uh, do you really see some other issue that actually overweighs like is much more important than consumer welfare at the end of the day? I agree with you. There is an act of government coercion where the government stands in the middle and interferes with uh, the ability of an Indian consumer 
to buy something from abroad or the ability of an Indian firm to buy something from abroad or the ability of an Indian firm to raise capital from a cheaper source abroad and so on. And I really feel uncomfortable with the readiness, with the willingness of uh, policymakers to use the coercive power of the state in such fashion. People know what's best for them. If a person wants to buy something from a vendor outside the country, why is it better when the government interferes? I feel that's a fundamental question of freedom that needs to be brought on the table. I, I do think this kind of ad hoc uh, protectionism is is not really the way forward because uh, you know ultimately we are uh, living in a in a market economy and there has to be uh, the freedom to choose. But I think we are we are actually talking about something uh, more more fundamental in the sense that uh, when we are uh, uh, looking at issues uh, relating to falling competitiveness of the Indian Indian industry. What kind of a roadmap are you going to be following to get around the hump? Because I think this the situation is increasingly becoming uh, grim because we do not have a robust uh, you know, manufacturing, even agriculture, I would say, and the uh, lack of uh, the competitiveness uh, that we are seeing all around. Indian economy is suffering no end. I think uh, you know if if this kind of a situation continues, it'll be very difficult to keep the macro fundamentals uh, in check. Things are going to go pretty awry. So I would think that you know we need to look at how we are going to be on a on a on a more sustained pathway as far as our uh, balance of payments is concerned. You know our, our current account deficit is already uh, threatening to go out of control. And for that, we need to uh, uh, avoid getting into a complete mess. I do think that we need to think seriously about how we're going to be, you know, strengthening the manufacturing se- sector. And at some point, we also need to think about agriculture as well. Uh, and, and and that's where I was thinking that uh, my my view is that we need to really have this uh, government and industry partnership, which is solely being missing here because the industry has uh, been holding on to the apron strings of the government for so, so long. They haven't actually been able to come out and set an agenda which they would expect the government to uh, to meet. And uh, so the industry needs to identify the pain points and they should actually ask the government to address all these issues. For instance, you know, the fundamental part of this whole, uh, the, the world we live in is that we need a robust innovation system. It's not just enough to just uh, manufacture whatever. And the innovation sector system the world over has actually needed a lot of government support. Uh, we have seen what had happened in this COVID, uh, COVID times. Most of the major uh, vaccines that were produced by these big pharmaceutical giants had substantial government backing. And I think there are there are lessons for India. I think uh, all these uh, responsibilities would have to be taken up by the government. And as I said, that government needs to play an important role of a facilitator. That's a very important role the government needs to play. And without which, I don't think we are going to get into a sustained uh, pathway. I agree with everything that has been said, but then we have to confront the difficulties of state capability in India. We are an underdeveloped country and uh, the capabilities in state structures are quite limited and in many ways have actually not fared well in the last 20 years. So we should be very cautious about what kind of mandate we wish to give the Indian state, given the limitations of what the Indian state is capable of. 
my last question is kind of regarding like each time there's a increase in a tariff or another capital control or something that's imposed by the government uh, people talk about uh, how we're like going getting closer to the pre-1991 era of like import substitution and those kind of policies since both of you have been like uh, have a lot of experience can you like show like uh, uh, like how close are we like or how far are we from the nehruvian or like the pre-1991 protectionism are we like far away from that or are we like getting much closer there yeah. no i think uh, it's it's not about uh, you know how far or uh, close we are i think it's a trend and uh, the trend seems to be uh, towards the nehruvian model you know the the self reliance of course you can call it by any name but it's it's self reliance at the end of the day whatever be the nuances that the government uh, tries to put on this old atmanirbhar bharat at the end of the day it is it is self reliance the second thing that it again worries me a specific thing about the production linked incentive is that incentives are linked to certain capacities and uh, uh, and and the capacities are set in this whole uh, policy document of uh, the production linked incentive now that was reminding me of uh, a policy that was followed during the industrial licensing era which was called the minimum economic scale so the government was telling the industry what would be the minimum economic scale and then you know directing the uh, the industry to produce uh, along those lines so uh, the pli and its incentives uh, at different levels of capacity you know smacks of that kind of a policy so i would say that you know it's it's the it's the direction uh not really the distance and which, which actually worries me because if you are following this direction there is a the danger of reaching that some day and uh, and that 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 would be problematic in my view one measure that we should be thinking about is the weighted average tariff rate for all products this is something that the world bank computes and releases and my rough picture is that there has been no significant change in that number since 2008 so the weighted average tariff in india is about 6% and this has been stable since about 2008 so i don't think there's been a significant movement away from where we were earlier where we were in 2000 that's it there are many other elements of protectionism which are not just in tariffs and as i was saying earlier most importantly it is about equal treatment of foreign companies and i feel that a lot of the regulatory system is moving in ways where there are national champions and national champions get policy support and foreign companies do not so i think that is the more worrisome thing to think about great uh, i think yeah thanks both of you for the great discussion thank you <laughs>